Hello and welcome to Eccentric Earth, the podcast where I, your host Amy Walker, delve into stories from across history with a guest who has no idea what the topic's going to be. Joining me this week is Adian Hang. Hello. Hi, welcome back. It's good to be back. I haven't been here for a while. Yeah, it's it's been a few episodes now. Sealand was our last one, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, the wonderful nation that is Sealand. So what have you been up to since we last saw you, Eddie? Or heard you? We're, we're not a visual medium, so it'd be here you. Um, so I have a new niece. It's very weird to think about my brother as a father because it's very disconcerting. It's like, it's very weird. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. A lot of my friends have started, like, settling down and having kids. And it's just like, oh, I can't imagine, like, it's like, sure, you're too young to be a parent. And I know technically we're not because it's, like, late 20s, early 30s. But it just seems like I wouldn't feel mature enough to be an adult. And you're you're a weird fucker like me. Why are you having kids? <laughs> now, the the point is, like, my my brother is is a great uncle and we have uh, two nephews. So now I have a third one. So and it's it's very weird because, like, seeing my brother as a dad is is very much like, dude, what happened? <laughs> so, yeah, that's very much my reaction to that um we shall wait and see how fucked she'll grow up to be as part of our family <laughs> because realistically i know she'll be fucked the question is just how much well if she takes after her uncle Addie, probably a bit i'll be proud of that <laughs> is, is there anything else or eh, all other shit is boring see you say all the other stuff is boring you've had major surgery since then Right, I forgot that that was. <laughs> I the timeline is very weird to me. So I uh, I got rid of my breasts. If someone is looking for a pair of double D's, uh, just hit me up and uh, I can hook you up. If you guys want to make soap, I think they're still good. Although the soap might not smell very good. But other than that, please don't actually make soap from that shit. That would be terrible. You're doing good now, though. Yeah, you're recovered well. Yeah, I, I got to go back to the gym, which is pretty awesome. My my range of motion is still pretty limited, but that's to be expected. Uh, and I got nifty new uh, like silicone straps that are supposed to help reduce um, scarring. So it nice. looks like it looks like I have like uh, the nipple patches that's supposed to prevent from nip slips, but <laughs> under my chest. Well. Congratulations on that. That's an awesome, awesome thing. Yeah, it's a great weight off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I bet it was. It's very weird now. Well, everyone should go and visit Addy's social media and congratulate him on 
the awesomeness because I've seen pictures of you afterwards and you are so much happier now. Big smiles on your face. Yeah, you've you've also seen a comparison of side to side. Yeah, scary stuff. Big change. Yeah. Good change. Definitely good change. Yeah, and that's what we like. We like good things happening for our guests. Okay, so now let's stop boring people who listen to us. Yeah, now it's time to, to do our topic. Hey, it's Hansi from The Squeak Project, and we're having our first SqueakCon on Saturday, December 1st at the Lyric Hall in New Haven, Connecticut. We're going to be celebrating women and fandom with performances by Tea Time for Mad Girls, Cat Smith, a film festival, cosplay guests, vendors, and then we're wrapping up the evening with a meetup and nerd karaoke at the bar. Get your tickets at filmfreeway.com forward slash SqueakCon. Bessie Coleman was born on January 26th, 1892 in Atlanta, Texas, the 10th of 13 children. 13? Isn't that a sign of bad luck for some people? It's, it's a sign of desperate need of birth control. And I say this every time we have a mother at the start of a story who has given birth to multiple, multiple children, but that poor woman... I I just imagine her walking around like always clutching her crotch because nothing will stay there at this point. Oh, that's a lovely image. I'm sorry. I know what happens to that area <laughs> after a child gets out. Yeah, and 13. Jesus, 13. Poor woman. Her parents were both sharecroppers. Her father, George Coleman, was Cherokee and African-American. Wow, that's an interesting combination. Yep. And her mother, Susan, was African-American. The 15 of them lived together in a single room dirt floor cabin until they moved to Waxahachie, Texas, when Bessie was two years old. You got a story with good names for you this time. I know. Oh, I I forgot that was in there. (laughs) But I think that's the worst one. That's the worst pronunciation out of the way. We'll find out. (laughs) I did have another story, which I scrapped because literally like the fifth word in was the place this person was born and I couldn't pronounce it. (laughs) We'll find out. Bessie's father bought a quarter acre of land and built a three room house for the family. Bessie began attending school in Waxahachie at the age of six and had to walk four miles each day to her segregated one room school. And that was four miles each way. Yeah, when did she have to get out the door oh very early sounds daunting i'm sorry teacher i'm not in the mood to study right now i just walked four miles (laughs) i am a very small child at this point let me nap well the children were also expected to help on the farms and uh yeah i forgot to include this part but at certain periods of the year when it was harvest time um, the school would just essentially close down so the kids could work full time on the farms. Yeah, but so at least then very she active didn't... kids and very fit. But at least then she didn't have to walk four miles to the farm. True. So despite these difficulties, she discovered that she loved to read and established herself as an outstanding math student. She went on to complete all eight grades at the school. I'm sorry, there was a laughter from the other yeah, side. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it just sounded like like she's laughing at what you said, and it sounded so dark. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, 
My girlfriend's crazy. In 1901, George Coleman left his family, his wife and 13 children. So stand up guy. Thank you, little shit. (laughs) Bessie's mother and two older brothers went to work and Bessie was left as a caretaker for her two younger sisters. Bessie easily established her position as family leader, reading aloud to her siblings and her mother at night. She often assured her ambitious church-going mother that she intended to amount to something. At the age of 12, Bessie was accepted into the Missionary Baptist Church School on a scholarship, where she studied until the age of 18. In 1910, when she turned 18, she took her savings and enrolled in the Oklahoma Colored Agricultural and Normal University in Langston. Wait, it's called the Normal University? Yeah. Normal University was something that would that they were called quite a bit back in the day. Um, so I've seen it crop up quite a bit. Um, yeah, I'm just searching normal school to see why they're called that, but it's just bringing up different ones. Uh, okay, here we go. A normal school is the historical term for an institution created to train high school graduates to be teachers by educating them in norms of pedagogy and curriculum. So basically, it's, it's the higher education to teach people how to educate. Okay. So Bessie completed one year before her money ran out and she had to return home, where she worked as a laundress until 1915. In 1916, at the age of 24, she moved to Chicago, where she lived with her older brother Walter. In Chicago, she worked as a manicurist at the White Sox Barbershop. There, she heard stories from pilots returning home from World War I about flying during the war. Inspired by their stories, she made the decision to become a pilot. So she's a pilot? No, at the minute she's a manicurist. Oh, she decided to become a pilot? Yes. she That's her new ambition. She wants to be a pilot. Good on you, lady. Mm-hmm. I would like to become a pilot too, but glasses. Yeah, that'll get you. She felt a strong drive to become an aviator and said, The air is the only place free from prejudices. I knew we had no aviators, neither men nor women, and I knew the race needed to be represented along this most important line. So I thought it was my duty to risk my life to learn aviation. So she's not just seen it as something she wants to do. It's she knows she's going to be going into a field where this would be pioneering as a black person. Well, a black and woman, Native American person and a woman. Yeah, basically, it's all stacked against her at the minute. (laughs) She is a multi threat. Yeah, it's if they're not going to go after her for one thing, they've got several other things they can choose from. Poor background, African-American, Native American, female, young. It's like, yeah. So she's going to have to work incredibly hard. In order to help her reach this goal, she took a second job at a chili parlor in order to make money faster. After befriending several leaders in Southside Chicago's African-American community, she found a sponsor in Robert Abbott, the publisher of the nation's largest African-American weekly, The Chicago Defender. As there were no black pilots in the area, and no white ones were willing to teach her, Abbott encouraged her to go and study abroad instead. Abbott suggested that she travel to France to learn to be a pilot. The French, he insisted, were not racist and were the world's leaders in aviation. I'm I'm thinking about your your earlier story about the... uh, Is it the Harlem Hellfighters? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as soon as he said that, I was like, yeah. It immediately reminded me of of that because they were treated just like everyone else over there by the French, where the Americans couldn't give a fuck. 
So I think, yeah, Abbott's spot on. The the French are the, the people to go to. Bessie received financial backing from banker Jesse Binger and a defender in order to do so. She took a French language class at the Berlitz School in Chicago before travelling to Paris on November 20th, 1920, so that she could earn her pilot's license. You go, girl. <laughs> she learned to fly in a Newport 82 biplane, which had a steering system that consisted of a vertical stick the thickness of a baseball bat in front of the pilot and a rudder bar under the pilot's feet. I, so very old school antiquated aircraft. I, I don't really understand what you just said, but I'll assume what you said she, is, is correct. Cause the, <laughs> well, at the, I at don't this period, know. A lot of the, uh, well, at this period, a lot of the planes are very much coming out of world war one stuff that was used in combat. And, you know, they're, they're progressing the technology, but it's still very, very basic at this point. So yeah, I think very old school plane that she's learning in. Look, lady, you didn't fall apart yet. You can fly it. Pretty much. <laughs> she completed her flight training at the best school in France and was awarded her Federation Aeronautique International license on June 15th, 1921. Bessie became the first woman of African-American and Native American descent to earn an aviation pilot license and the first person of African-American and Native American descent to earn an international aviation license from the Fédération Aéronautique Internationale. So, basically, she's allowed to fly anywhere. Because uh, of the Fédération Aéronautique. Yeah. Yeah, it's the world governing body for pilots. So, if, if she's got their license, yeah, they're pretty much saying she she's qualified everywhere. Cool. But she's got the um the standard american one as well so she's she's covered herself but yeah the first african-american and native american person to get either yay <clears throat> determined to polish her skills bessie spent the next two months taking lessons from a french ace pilot near paris and in september 1921 she sailed for new york she became a media sensation when she returned to the united states when speaking to the press, she would often exaggerate her already remarkable accomplishments in the interest of better publicity and bigger audiences. As a result, the African-American press of the country, primarily weekly newspapers, quickly proclaimed her Queen Bess. She told the press that she would be a leader in introducing aviation to her race. She would found a school for aviators of any race, and she would appear before audience in churches, schools, and theatres to spark the interests of African-Americans in the new expanding technology of flight. However, because commercial flight was still in its infancy, Bessie quickly realised that in order to make a living as a civilian aviator, she would have to become a stunt pilot and perform for paying audiences. I have to say that sounds fun. Yeah, it's like you can't go and basically be a flying bus driver, so I'm going to do some sick-ass tricks in the air. Yeah, that sounds pretty fun. In order to compete in what was a highly competitive arena, she needed advanced lessons and a more extensive repertoire. Returning to Chicago, Bessie could not find anyone willing to teach her, so in February 1922, she once again returned to Europe. She spent the next two months in France completing an advanced course in aviation, then left for the Netherlands to meet with Anthony Fokker, one of the world's most distinguished aircraft designers. 
She also travelled to Germany where she visited the Fokker Corporation and received additional training from one of the company's chief pilots. Once she was happy that she once she was happy, she then returned to the United States to launch her career in ex, in exhibition flying. So she's not only the first, she's actually getting more extensive training than any man would get at this point, going and, and flying with the experts. Yeah, she seems also like she's fighting way more than the other men. Well, yeah, she's a non-white woman. She's having to fight a hell of a lot harder than any man would. Because, you know, history yeah. teaches us even... Not even history. The world today teaches us if you're not white and you're not a man, you're going to have to work harder. Patriarchy is fun! No, no, it's not. And that, people, is called sarcasm? In 1923, Bessie purchased a small plane, but crashed on her way to her first scheduled West Coast air show. Oh, wow. Shit. The plane was completely destroyed, and she suffered injuries that hospitalized her for three months. Returning to Chicago to recover, it took another 18 months to find financial backers for a series of shows in Texas. Her flights and theatre appearances there during the summer of 1925 were highly successful, earning her enough to make a down payment on a second plane. Wait, what, like, to that time, because Aeronautica was still considerably new, Mm -hmm. to begin with, owning a plane was probably fucking expensive. Yeah. Very expensive. So having down payment on a second plane, that's like <sighs> wicked. Yeah, she's she's doing very well for herself considering the obstacles that she's had to face and stuff because, you know, this is still very, very early in as far as aviation goes. So going and watching an air show was huge, huge business. People would pay a lot to go see it. So yeah, she knocks out a few of those every month and the, the money's soon going to start coming in. Her new fame was also bringing her steady work. She wrote to one of her sisters, At last, I'm going to be able to earn enough money to open my school for flyers. Performing for huge crowds under the stage name Queen Bess, she was hugely she was a hugely popular draw for five years. She was invited to important events in order to perform and was often interviewed by newspapers and quickly became admired by people of all races. The colour of my skin, at first a drawback, now drew large crowds wherever I went. At first I was a curiosity, but soon the public discovered I could really fly. Then they came to see Brave Bessie, as they called me, she later told one journalist. So, she's she's proving herself. People yeah, are looking she's... past her race and seeing that, no, she's, she's just a damn good pilot. I think the fact that they look that she is of uh, African-American descent and Native American descent, is also one of the reasons they like her so much, Mm. to a degree. Yeah, well, she's going to instantly have, I I think, more than likely, instantly going to have a a lot of respect from anyone who isn't white, because she's entering this arena and proving that she can do it, and other black people, Native American people, people of any race can do it. So she's getting the love and support of of those people, plus then the white people who probably come along initially as this is a bit different this is a black person doing this and then they realize actually no this is a, a black woman who's really achieving you know fair play to her and they're gaining that respect as well she's i think yeah she's her whilst the color of her skin probably did hold her back a hell of a lot i think it's also one of the a, things a, a, that made her infamous yeah yeah I, I think it's it's definitely helped build her career because she's not just 
one of the first women pilots. She's one of the first non-white pilots as well. So when added together, yeah, that's a hell of a draw for people. She primarily flew Curtis JN-4 Jenny biplanes and other aircraft which had been army surplus aircraft left over from World War I. She made her first appearance in an American air show on September 3rd, 1922, an event honouring veterans of the all-black 369th Infantry Regiment of World War I. Held at Curtis Field on Long Island near New York City, and sponsored by her friend Abbott and the Chicago Defender newspaper, the show billed Bessie as the world's greatest woman flyer, and featured aerial displays by eight other American ace pilots, and a jump by a black parachutist, Hubert Julian. Six weeks after her initial performance, she returned to Chicago to deliver a stunning demonstration of daredevil manoeuvres, including figure eights, loops, and near-ground dips to a large and enthusiastic crowd at the Checkerboard Aerodrome. I kind of want to do that. You kind of want to do it? Yeah. <laughs> I I like the adrenaline, especially like the flight. You know when you take off in a plane and you just start feeling in the pit of your stomach that mm. sensation of like, I love those, so I kind of want to do that. <laughs> Why not? Go for it. Told you I can't. Glasses, still a reason. Yeah, and they told Bessie she couldn't. Don't let anyone tell you you can't, Eddie. Medical reasons, race reasons, medical reasons, race reasons. Which one are harder to fight against? Where there's a will, there's a way. Okay, so loops, eights. Yeah. So despite the thrill of stunt flying and the admiration of a cheering crowd... These were only part of Bessie's dream. She never lost sight of her childhood vow to one day amount to something. As a professional aviator, Bessie would often be criticised by the press for her opportunistic nature and the flamboyant style she brought to her exhibition flying. I'm pretty sure being an exhibition flyer would usually indicate that you have to be flamboyant as well. Otherwise, yeah, but they don't like it when the black woman does it. Damn you, black women! However... She also quickly gained a reputation as a skilled and daring pilot who would stop at nothing to complete a difficult stunt. In Los Angeles, she broke a leg and three ribs when her plane stalled and crashed on the 22nd of February 1923. Again? She broke another one? Yep. If you're going to be going into piloting like this, you're going you're gonna to get injuries. It's just part of the job. You gotta crack a few ribs. In the 1920s in Orlando, Florida, on a speaking tour... She met the Reverend Hill and his wife, community activists who invited her to stay with them at the parsonage of Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in the neighbourhood of Paramore. The couple, who treated her as a daughter, persuaded her to stay and Bessie opened a beauty shop in Orlando to earn extra money to buy her own plane. That, that's kind of funny. <laughs> Look, you want another plane, you gotta, you got to supplement that income. Yeah, I know. So, it's, just, it's just kind of funny. Like, ah, yes... I'm I'm going to start a beauty salon. Well, she's got the experience in the past and Yeah, I I said nothing against it. <laughs> I just said but again, it's, it's funny. Um it's something that I I saw in a few articles and and pieces where I read about her and it's like, oh yeah, she opened a beauty shop salon and then it moved on. It's like people are kind of gloss over the fact that she's now a business owner as well, which again, huge achievement for a young black woman at the time. Yeah, no, she's badass. Like, I... Fuck, that's a major. Mm -hmm. Through her media contacts, she was offered a role in a feature-length film titled Shadow and Sunshine to be financed by the African-American Seminole Film Producing Company. 
She accepted the role, hoping the publicity would help advance her career and provide her with some money that she needed to establish her own flying school. However, upon learning that the first scene in the film required her to appear in very small tattered clothing with a stick and a pack on her back, she refused to proceed. With a stick and a pack on her back? Uh, I think it was more the tattered revealing outfit she didn't yes wanna... I, I assume that's the point but what do you yeah. mean a stick and a, a pack on her back it's just the description that i had she would have a walking stick and a pack on her back uh, okay that's the description of how she would have appeared i i don't know if they mean she was walking with a stick and was carrying a pack or the stick and the pack were on her back or if she had the pack attached to the stick like a hobo bindle i i don't know Every description. So just many had it. questions. <laughs> so after refusing the role, Bessie left Orlando by train to give a benefit exhibition for the Jacksonville Negro Welfare League, scheduled for May first in nineteen twenty-six. Her mechanic and publicity agent, twenty-four-year-old William D. Wills, flew the plane from Orlando in preparation for the air show, but he was forced to make three landings along the way because the plane had been poorly maintained. Upon learning about this, Bessie's friends and family did not consider the aircraft safe and begged her not to fly it. She flew it? She didn't. Did someone else fly it? Well, um, in order to prepare for the uh, upcoming air show, they uh, took off a few days before, with Willis flying the plane and Bessie in the other seat. They were planning a parachute jump the next day and wanted to look over the cockpit to examine the terrain and as such, she was not wearing a seatbelt. Ah, oh, fuck. About ten minutes into the flight, the plane unexpectedly went into a dive and then a spin. Bessie was thrown out of the plane at 2,000 feet. Oh, fuck. She fell to the ground and died instantly. William oh. Wills was unable to regain control of the plane, and it plummeted to the ground. It hit and exploded upon impact, killing Wills immediately. At least they both die immediately. I know yeah. it's it's like it's small comfort, but the the point is that if if it it if they wouldn't have died immediately and taking time and dying, it just mm. it's terrible. Thing, if you're falling two thousand feet, that that's an instant death. You you're not gonna. Yeah, no, but it, like if if uh, the plane crashed and. It wouldn't have exploded. He had the chance of like staying alive a bit longer. Mm. But the fact that he died instantly, the that's better. Yeah. Although the wreckage of the plane was badly burnt, upon examination it was later discovered that a wrench used to service the engine had jammed the plane's controls. Are you fucking kidding me? Bessie was only 34 years old at the time of her death. Bessie had three memorial services in Jacksonville, Orlando, and Chicago, the last of which was attended by thousands of people. She was buried at Chicago's Lincoln Cemetery and gradually, over the years following her death, achieved recognition at last as a hero of early aviation. Bessie would not live long enough to establish the school for young black aviators that she dreamed of, but her pioneering achievements served as an inspiration for generations of African-American men and women. Lieutenant William J. Powell wrote, Because of Bessie Coleman, we have overcome that which was worse than racial barriers. We have overcome the barriers within ourselves and dared to dream. 
Powell served in a segregated unit during World War I and tirelessly promoted the cause of black aviation through his book, his journals, and the Bessie Coleman Aero Club, which he founded in 1929. Bessie Coleman was inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame in 2006, 80 years after her death. She is a hero. Yeah, yeah. Especially that, that thing at the end from Lieutenant Powell, someone who was already serving and part of the military before Bessie went and became a pilot, who's turned around and said she changed it for all of us. And and then went and founded the the flying club in her honor. It's like that that shows how much of an impact she had. It wasn't just she didn't just change it for people coming after her. She changed it for people who were there before her as well. She was amazing, and I don't think many people have heard of her, which is an absolute travesty. I'm I'm at awe by this woman, and I just like fuck. Imagine what she could have achieved if she had lived for another 30 years. Imagine what she could have achieved if someone didn't leave the fucking wrench there. Yeah. The point is that even if she would have worn, like, the seatbelt, it wouldn't have mattered because the plane still crashed. Yeah. Also, I'm sorry for that the other pilot guy. Mm. Yeah. That's, like, that's another waste of young life. Yeah. Yeah, he was only 24. You know, it, it was it was a, a senseless, pointless, random loss of two people, one of which was an absolutely amazing person. Just, just terrible. Yeah, but she did some amazing things, and I think the, the world has been made a better place by Bessie Coleman having been in it. This is your version of fucking uplifting? She's an inspirational. She's, yeah. she's an amazing person. But she died a very tragic death. Yeah, and if I could change that, I would. But yeah, she she died a tragic death, but look at what she did while she was actually alive. And I think people should know that story. She's an amazing woman, and, and she did a wonderful series of things, and she inspired so many and made the world a better place. And yeah, her death was tragic, but she shouldn't be forgotten about because it it's painful to to hear that at the end she should be celebrated and applauded and it took 80 years to put her in the hall of fame that's fucking ridiculous she should have been one of the first people in there but we also know that women seldom enter their proper positions until someone cries about it yeah and and then there's her race as well which guaranteed held back those accolades even after her death because people are shit yay uplifting story (laughs) well i i don't think there's much more we can really say about bessie coleman after that but if people liked listening to this episode and and had a good time where can they find you online um you you can find me on twitter at adi underscore anhang a-n-h-a-n-g i also appear periodic periodically and randomly at uh, Smorgasbord, and on this show where I annoy Amy to no end. Oh, you, you're never annoying. She has to say that. I know where she lives. <laughs> yeah, but you, you're like halfway across the world, so I'm not worried you'll get me. Suddenly I appear at your door. No. <laughs> yeah, you should definitely go check out Addy's stuff, especially on Smorgasbord, because that's a great fun show. And 
it's weird and wacky and bizarre and completely random. So it really suits Addy's personality down to a T, I think. Yep. <laughs> well, if, if people enjoyed this show, you can find us online as well. We have social media accounts for Twitter, which is at eccentric underscore earth. Uh, our Instagram is the same and the same handle at eccentric underscore earth. And we're on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash eccentric earth. We're on all major podcast providers and YouTube. So make sure you like and subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And please leave us a review. And we're also now part of the Brit Pod Scene Network, which is a great little group of British podcasters who have some awesome shows. So go and check them out as well. And have a look at some of their shows because if you enjoyed us i'm sure you'll find something they like they're all really really good shows well thank you uh very much for for coming on the show again addy i'm sure we'll have you on again very soon i hope so and to all the jewish listeners happy hanukkah yeah when when does hanukkah start the first candle is on december 2nd yeah so happy hanukkah because this will be coming out on december 3rd so yeah Good timing. I like that. That's worked out well. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you for for joining us, Eddie. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you all next time. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.